don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Okay, we are in week three of our four-week series on Indigenous Peoples Day. So, Garen, well, first off, maybe if, if you're listening to this, you should go back. And you haven't listened to the first two parts, you should definitely go back and listen to that. But, Garen, let's get started on part three. What do we need to know? What are we going to be talking about? So, today we're going to talk a little bit more, go widen the lens. And instead of just looking at a couple stories that we look at in more depth... We're going to give kind of a lot of examples of different indigenous leaders trying in different ways to carve out a path for their people to exist and see how many ways in which that was just not possible. So I'm going to start out with a quote of Ten Bears from the Yamparika Comanches who said, My people have never first drawn a bow or fired a gun against the whites. There have been trouble on the line between us, and my young men have danced the war dance. But it was not begun by us. It was you who sent out the first soldiers, and we who sent out the second. There were things which you have said to me which I do not like. You said that you wanted to put us on a reservation, to build us houses and make us medicine lodges. I do not want them. I was born upon the prairie where the wind blew free and there was nothing to break the light of the sun. I was born where there was no enclosure and where everything drew a free breath. I want to die there and not within walls. If the Texans had kept out of my country, there might have been peace. But but that which you now say we must live on is too small. The Texans have taken away the places where the grass grew the thickest and the timber was the best. Had we kept that, we might have done things that you ask, but it is too late. The white man has the country which we loved, and we only wish to wander on the prairie until we die. You can see again just the despair of realizing, of gradually coming to this realization of there really isn't an option being left open for us. The white people, the white settlers have taken the best of everything. So Little Wolf, one of the indigenous leaders, sought peace by surrendering to the whites and just giving in to the terms that they offered. So they were tricked and told that if they surrendered their arms, they'd be given one reservation, but they were instead sent to another. And the army's own inspector, in reporting on that reservation, said, quote, They are not getting supplies enough to prevent starvation. Many of their women and children are sick for want of food. A few articles I saw given to them, they would not use themselves, but they would take them to their children, who were crying for food. The beef I saw given them was of very poor quality and would not have been considered merchantable for any use. Little Wolf said of this, We have been south and suffered a great deal down there. Many have died of diseases, which we have no name for. Our heart looked and longed for this country where we were born, There were only a few of us left, and we only wanted a little ground where we could live. We left our lodges standing and ran away in the night. The troops followed us. I rode out and told the troops we did not want to fight. We only wanted to go north. And if they would have let us alone, we would kill no one. The only reply we got was a volley. After that, we had to fight our way. 
but we killed none who did not fire first. My brother, Dolknife, took one half of the band and surrendered near Fort Robinson. They gave up their guns, and then the whites killed them all. You see, just that futility, what do you do? You surrender, and they kill you. You say you're going to be peaceful. It's a lot of broken promises, and as you pointed out, it's just a cycle where the U.S., they take the land via treaty or forced treaty. They would transgress against the indigenous people, and then the indigenous people would resist, and then the United States would eradicate them. Mm-hmm. Like just in mass, they would, there'd, be, there'd be mass genocide. And so we see this just repeated cycle over and over. Mm-hmm. So then Chief Mangas of the Apaches negotiated peace. Here there's a Daniel Connor, a soldier with the California Volunteers, who records that Chief Mangas wanted to achieve peace for all the Apaches. So he agreed to meet the soldiers for talks of peace at their invitation. So he came alone. He was taken at gunpoint by 12 soldiers. And they kept him overnight, torturing him while he slept. They took heating rods and they stuck them in the fire until they glowed red hot. And then they would touch his feet with them in order to kind of torture him as he tried to sleep. And when he protested, two soldiers fired on him simultaneously. Others scalped him, decapitated him, boiled his head down to the skull and sold it to a phrenologist in the east. And they discarded his body. The official military report said that Mangas had been killed while trying to escape. My God. That's what they did to a man who, one of the leaders who came in in good faith at their invitation seeking peace. In another story, Lieutenant Whitman, an American captain at Camp Grant, assured peace to some Aravipa Apaches if they would just lay down their arms and farm near Camp Grant. So they give up your savage ways and come farm and we'll protect you. But then here's what happened. They gave up their weapons in pursuit of a permanent state of peace and they started to farm. But a separate group of Apaches that were 40 miles away raided some farms in San Javier and San Pedro, settlements near Tucson. That was, yeah, 50 miles away. And then four white people were killed in those two raids. So a band of Tucsonites fashioned themselves as a committee of public safety and sought revenge. But then rather than trying to find out who was responsible for these raids and taking revenge on them, they decided to take revenge on these unarmed Aravipa Indians 50 miles away who clearly had had nothing to do with the raids. But they were unarmed, so they, it was going to be an easier way to kill them and take their stuff. So they traveled the 50 miles to attack these Apaches. The adults were all killed or fled, and 27 children were captured and sold as slaves in Mexico. Lieutenant Whitman felt responsible because he's the one who had kind of said, we'll protect you if you give up your weapons. So he leveraged his position of power, and he actually got a trial for the Tucson killers. But if you've been listening to this podcast for long, you'll probably not be surprised that an all-white jury, after deliberating for only 19 minutes, declared the killers not guilty. And also Whitman, as a result of kind of pressing for that trial, he ultimately like lost his position. There's a quote from Eskimenzen of the Aravaipa Apaches who describes this, saying, quote, If it had not been for the massacre, there would have been a great many more people here now. When I made peace with Lieutenant Whitman, my heart was very big and happy. 
The people of Tucson and San Javier must be crazy. They acted as though they had neither heads nor hearts. They must have a thirst for our blood. These Tucson people write for the papers and tell their own story. The Apaches have no one to tell our side of the story. So in another episode, we have uh, Captain Jack of the Modocs, which Captain Jack sounds like a white name, but actually it, it was a name that he took on. He was a indigenous leader. And he was in this exchange where he rejected the supremacy of white American law over the the value of his own law system. And we'll see how that played out. So Captain Meacham was the white leader and he was negotiating with Captain Jack of the Modocs. Meacham wanted Jack to give up some Indian warriors who had killed white settlers. He assured Jack that they would be treated fairly in the court of law. So these young indigenous men had committed offenses. They had committed crimes. But the question at hand here between these two leaders was whose law has jurisdiction? Like who gets to decide what the consequence is going to be for these young men who, who committed these crimes? So Captain Jack responded and said, who will try them, white men or Indians? Meacham said, white men, of course. Jack responded, then will you give up the men who killed the women and children on Lost River to be tried by the Modoc? Like, if you get to try our people, do we get to try your people when they kill us? Meacham responded, the Modoc law is dead. The white man's law rules the country now. Jack responded, will you try the men who fired on my people by your own law? Because both men knew that that wasn't going to happen. And then Meacham just repeated, the white man's law rules the country, the Indian's law is dead. Jack responded, the white man's laws are good for white men, but they are made to leave the Indian out. I cannot give up my men to be hung. I know my men did wrong. Their blood was bad, but they did not begin. The white man began. So they were at an impasse. Jack was unwilling to turn these men over to the jurisdiction of this kind of white lynch type justice system. And at this impasse, it ultimately came to war. Ultimately, Captain Jack would kill Meacham and then he himself would be hung for it. His body, Captain Jack's body, was embalmed and put on display at carnivals in the East where spectators would pay 10 cents to see it. Sick. And this, this exhibitionism is just like a continual feature that, that you see that keeps popping up. Just the the way that white people caricatured and then had this like sick fascination. Fetish. fetish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This like With cruel bodies. and kind of barbaric fetish. It, 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 that the indigenous people, like you'll see from the stories we read earlier, that they were kind of appalled at. The, yeah. the lack of respect for the humanity of, of people like and they were appalled at the process of scalping until it became common because of the the bounty system so we're going to just run through some other quick episodes uh, don't have time to go into full details but yeah. just running through in 1870 major eugene m baker and his soldiers on the marius river in montana surrounded and massacred blackfeet indians of 219 Indians, mostly women and children, only 46 escaped to tell the story. In another story, the government convinced Crazy Horse to surrender by promising that his people would be given a reservation in the Powder River country. But after he surrendered, the government went back on its promise. So Crazy Horse gathered his people and he was set to return to the plains. He's like, well, if you're not going to give me the reservation you said you would, then we're going back out. But then he was arrested and killed. 
So I want to zoom in a little bit on just how the treaties worked. And so there's an account here of the, just the process of how the government pushed through one of its own treaties that it had set up. So in the Treaty of 1868, it said, and continue, can you read that for us again? Sure. It says, no white person or person shall be permitted to settle upon or occupy any portion of the territory, nor without consent of the Indians to pass through the same. So essentially, the just completely restricted, we're not going to go into your land. That was the Treaty of 1868. This treaty was made when Congress believed that the Black Hills were worthless. So they were willing to say, we're not going to go into the Black Hills because why would we want to go into the Black Hills? But four years later, gold was discovered. And then rampant violations of the treaty began. So by 1874, six years later, the government began sending soldiers into the territory without permission. So now it's not just people going in, not just that we're not going to enforce the boundary, but soldiers are going in. When the Black Hill Indians complained, President Grant sent a commission to treat with them about relinquishing the Black Hill territory, which is just, this is shockingly fast after this treaty is made, and then we're already going in with armies to tell you to move again. The commission came armed. The government was in a bind because of that recent treaty, and they couldn't just make a new treaty because that first treaty had said that three-fourths of the Black Hill Indians had to ratify any new treaty to be made. So the commission failed to convince the people to sell the land or even to sell the mineral rights. They returned to Washington recommending, recommending that the government force the sale of the land for a, quote, fair price. Like, we all know it is not going to be a fair price. The government ordered the Black Hill Indians to come into a reservation or be treated as hostile. Same as what we saw in Colorado. The War Department ultimately attacked peaceful Indians who were in their own country, per the treaty that had just recently been ratified. On March 17, 1875, soldiers under Joseph Reynolds and Captain James Egan attacked a sleeping camp. They destroyed the camp, burned the teepees, and drove away the horses which between 12,000 and 15,000 of them. So major encampment that they just destroyed. So the people obviously felt justified to resist. And there's a quote here from Sitting Bull, one of the war chiefs. He says, We were born naked, and I've been taught to hunt and live on game. You've told us that we must learn to farm, live on one house, and take on your ways. Suppose the people living beyond the great sea came to your house and told you that you must stop farming and kill your cattle and take your houses and lands. What would you do? Would you not fight them? And I just have to point out here, that's exactly what we did do in the Revolutionary War. People from across the great sea hmm. came and told us, like, you have to stop doing things your way and do it our way. But it w- in that case, it wasn't we're taking all your land. It was a 3% tax. It was like a 1% tax and a 2% this other levy thing. And over that 3% tax, we went to war and fought in the Revolutionary War. So then are these indigenous leaders not justified in fighting back when all of their land and everything they own is being taken and they're being sent to these reservations where a third of their number will die in the first year of starvation? Right. But the Treaty of 1868 wasn't dead yet. The government sent Reno to charge through and attack Sioux villages that refused to join the reservation. Sitting Bull responded by attacking and destroying Custer's army. The government then wanted revenge. 
But instead of trying to defeat these war chiefs who actually had fought and attacked them, they took vengeance on peaceful inhabitants of the reservations. Though they had played no part in the battle or in the fighting, the government told General Sherman to make the reservations in Sioux country prisoners of war. So all the indigenous people who had complied and come onto the reservations were made prisoners of war. They further decided that the Sioux had forfeited all of their rights to the Black Hill and Powder River country. The Treaty of 1868 then was dead. So basically, they they just used this justification of, okay, finally, some of you got upset enough that you attacked us, and therefore we're going to take all of you as prisoners of war, and just the treaty doesn't count anymore. And I love this by one of the chiefs who responded and said, since the great father promised never to move the Indians, we have been moved five times. I think you had better put the Indians on wheels so you can run them about wherever you wish or whenever you wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just over and over and over again. Yep. They move them to one place and would find gold there. So they move them to a different place until they found some other reason that they wanted that too. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Talbot was another leader who sought peace, and again, it didn't work. He says, We never did the white man any harm, and we don't intend to. We are willing to be friends with the white men. The buffalo are diminishing fast. The antelope that were plenty a few years ago, they are now thin. When they shall all die, we shall be hungry. We shall want something to eat, and we will be compelled to come into the fort. Your young men must not fire at us. When they see us, they fire, and we fire on them. So Talbull said this to General Winfield Scott Hancock, kind of trying to feel out the possibility of some kind of surrender, some kind of peace. But General Hancock did not reciprocate. He chased the Cheyennes away from their villages and at one point burned everything they owned, Mm -hmm. causing a roar of outrage among the Plains Indians. He burned 251 teepees, 962 buffalo robes, which had a lot of value in day and age, 436 saddles, and hundreds of utensils for cooking, crafting, cultivated, eating, and living. It just raised their civilization. And then General Carr later attacked the Cheyennes. Their warriors sacrificed their lives in an attempt to delay the white soldiers long enough for their women and children to escape. But then Tall Bull was ultimately killed in that fighting. In another episode, uh, Standing Bear and his fellow chiefs were told that they should leave their country and take a reservation in Indian territory. And they were told that they could preview the land and pick whichever spot they wanted. So they, they go along with this. They travel 500 miles in this wagon train to the territory and they look around and they're like, this all sucks. None of this territory is good. Like you said, we could take our pick. We don't like any of it. You said that if we don't like any of it, we could just tell the father in Washington, that is the president, that we don't like any of it and you'd bring us back home. But then the white surveyor who kind of was instigating this whole process said basically, no, you have to pick some of this land or I'm not going to take you back. I'm not going to take you home. 
So these indigenous leaders chose to walk. They're, they're the older men. I mean, they're the chiefs, so they're older men. They chose to walk 500 miles home rather than agree to take some of this bad reservation land. And so picture like your grandfather walking 500 miles rather than agreeing on paper to, to take some of this land. Like they risked their lives to do this. And then the surveyor was able to make it back to their home before them because he had the wagon train. And so all of it was for nothing because by the time they got home, all their people were still being forcibly removed. And they were told, will you go peaceably or by force? So on May 1st, 1877, they were forced onto a 50-day journey from their home and within a year, a fourth of their people had perished from hunger and sickness. Dang. So in another story, when the Teuton Sioux tribes surrendered after the wars of 1876 and 1877, they had lost the Powder River country and the Black Hills. So the government's next move was to change the western boundary of the Great Sioux Reservation from the 104th to the 103rd Meridian. So you just see just this continued shift of the boundaries, moving the goalposts, moving the lines. In spite of their resistance, the Sioux in 1882 came very near to losing 14,000 square miles of territory to a commission headed by a Newton Edmonds, an expert whose job it was to negotiate, to basically trick indigenous people out of their lands. It was his job to negotiate lands away from Indians. So this, this will kind of show the process of how they did it. Mm-hmm. He enlisted a Reverend Hinman to take an offer to the Sioux. It said, after we have laid out the reservations, the great father will give you 25,000 cows and 1,000 bulls. To obtain the livestock, however, the Sioux had to sign some papers which the commissioners had brought along. But none of them were able to read English, Mm -hmm. so they didn't know what they were signing. And in fact, they were signing away 14,000 square miles of land in exchange for these promised cows and bulls. They were just being taken advantage of. Agencies where the Sioux were reluctant to sign anything in other locations, Reverend Hinman would just bully them into it. In order to obtain an abundance of signatures, to get the signatures that he needed, he sometimes persuaded boys as young as seven years old to sign the papers. According to the treaty that governed this process, only adult male Indians could sign, but that didn't stop him. So in a meeting at Wounded Knee, Hinman told the Indians that if they did not sign, they would not receive any more rations or annuities, and furthermore, that they would be sent to the Indian Territory. Many of the older Sioux who had seen the limits of their land continually shrinking each time they touched the pen to the treaty papers, they were reticent. They were very hesitant for good reason, and they suspected that Hinman was trying to steal the reservation. So Yellowhair, a minor chief at Pine Ridge, stood strong against signing, but he was then frightened to do so by Hinman's threats. After the ceremony of signing was completed, the commissioners departed, Yellowhair took a round ball of earth and mockingly presented it to the Pine Ridge agent and said, We have given up nearly all of our land, and you had better take the balance now. And here, I hand it to you. The commissioners offered the Indians 50 cents per acre for this land. Sitting Bull immediately rejected this as a swindle. He knew that it was worth way more than that. And they had no more land to spare. So for about a month, the commissioners tried to persuade the Standing Rock Indians that Sitting Bull was misleading them, and that really them selling their land would be for their benefit. 
Only 22 sues signed at Standing Rock. After failing to obtain the required three-fourths of the indigenous people's signatures at the Crow Creek and Lower Brule agencies, the commissioners gave up. Basically, they tried, even with bullying and threats, to get enough signatures to take away the rest of this land, but they couldn't do it. So they returned to Washington and recommended that the government should just ignore the Treaty of 1868 and take the land without consent of the Indians. So by 1888, the United States government was not quite ready to just completely throw out the treaty, but the following year, Congress took a step in that direction, and they authorized basically to just get rid of the treaty if it became necessary. What the politicians preferred, though, was essentially to force the Indians into selling a large portion of the reservation out of fear that if they didn't, then the government would just get rid of the treaty and take it. So, I mean, it's negotiation through blackmail. Yeah. It's like negotiating at the barrel of a gun. So knowing that the Indians trusted a General George Crook, officials convinced him that the Sioux would lose everything unless they voluntarily agreed to break up their reservation. So they convinced Crook of that. Crook goes to the... He was, you know, on good terms with, with the indigenous leaders, and he goes thinking that, Basically, I got to convince them to sign or they're going to lose everything. And he was off- authorized to offer $1.50 per acre, so three times the earlier offer, but still nothing compared to what it was worth. Crook pushed the chiefs into signing, and Sitting Bull still led an opposition, but ultimately, Crook, thinking that I have to get them to sign, he kind of like pulled one over on them and he invited all the leaders to a meeting, but secretly didn't invite Sitting Bull so that the leader of the opposition wouldn't be there. And it was at that meeting that he convinced them to sign. And so with that signing, they lost their land. So this guy, Crook, who had some sympathies for the indigenous people, but ultimately tricked them, in a way, out of their land, he describes later on how unfairly the indigenous people were misrepresented in America's newspapers and in the public imagination. I mean, he's he's a kind of a guy of mixed character, I guess you could say, in the story, but his quote is pretty insightful, so I'm going to read it. He says, It is too often the case that border newspapers disseminate all sorts of exaggerations and falsehoods about the Indians, which are then copied in the papers of high character and wide circulation in other parts of the country, while the Indian side of the case is rarely ever heard. In this way, the people at large get false ideas with reference to the matter. Then, when the outbreak does come, public attention is turned to the Indians. Their crimes and atrocities are alone condemned, while the persons whose injustices have driven them to the course escape scot-free and are the loudest in their denunciations. No one knows this fact better than the Indian. Therefore, He is excusable in seeing no justice in a government which only punishes him while it allows the white man to plunder him as he pleases. I think is a succinct summary of how the negotiations and relations between the United States government and the indigenous nations that owned the entirety of this country went for hundreds of years. And it is why... Indigenous people are where they are today and, and that they had basically this entire country taken from them and were given these squalid reservations that, uh, I mean, 
many of them have been improved now, but at the time were just uh, essentially uninhabitable. D. Brown turns our eyes, uh, he's the author from which much of this is sourced, he turns our eyes toward the many lost peoples of history, saying, the California Indians were as peaceable as the climate they inhabited, but no one remembers the Cholulas, the Chimaricos, the Uraburas, the Nipuas, the Aloas, or a hundred other bands whose bones have been sealed under a million miles of freeways, parking lots, and slabs of tract housing. It is upon this story of tragedy that our modern nation is built. The burial grounds of these betrayed peoples are under our supermarkets. We continue to refuse to honor our treaties that we as a nation have made with indigenous people. Just flat out flagrant refusal to honor them in almost any way. One recent treaty, or one that was recently in the news rather, was that some of the indigenous people were promised through treaties that they would have congressional representation. And the United States continues to not honor these promises. We owe a debt, or I don't know, how do, how do we want to end it? We owe a debt, <laughs> period. Yeah. Of all the, you know, the lies and the broken promises, the broken treaties, the lives, the loss of life, the loss of generational wealth, the intergenerational trauma. We think about alcoholism statistics um, amongst indigenous people, and then still the abuse of indigenous women, the alarming statistics of how they disappear, they're kidnapped. They're, I mean, we owe a debt, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it is the curse that continues to give and reap havoc and trauma into the lives of indigenous people. Yeah. And the blood cries out from the ground. And you literally, can, you can pretend like it's not there. And you can just try to ignore it and go about and live your life and not learn the history and just pretend like this didn't happen. But the blood is not silenced. And the Bible talks multiple times about blood crying out from the ground and rising up to meet the ears of the Lord Almighty. And until we repent of, acknowledge of, and part of repentance is to seek to remedy and make right on these promises, this blood cries out from the ground. And I hope and pray that through this series, and and next week we're going to get into, in the final part, talking about kind of the modern day situation a little bit more. I hope that we can learn as a nation to right some of these many great wrongs. And through that, start a process of healing that has far too long been delayed.